everyone, I'm Amanda Borshaldan, and welcome to Times Will Tell, the weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. The holiday of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, is here, and one major theme surrounding this day that marks the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai is conversion. So we're speaking with Seth Farber, an American-Israeli rabbi and social activist who is a leading expert in conversion. Seth was ordained in New York by Yeshiva University, and after moving to Israel, he earned a PhD in Jewish history from Hebrew University in Jerusalem. In 2002, Seth founded the organization Itim, Passages in Hebrew, which helps up to 5,000 people a year navigate the Israeli chief rabbinate in vital life cycle events. Itim works to build a Jewish and democratic Israel, they say, in which all Jews can lead full Jewish lives. Seth is also a founder of Giur Kahalcha, Israel's largest non-governmental orthodox conversion program. Let's hear all about it now. Hi, Seth. Thank you so much for joining me. Where am I finding you today? Hi, first of all, it's nice to be here, Amanda. I'm actually at home today in Ra'anana. Usually I'm in Jerusalem, but today uh, at home with my family. Yofi, thanks so much. So we're here to discuss conversion. First of all, we'll discuss historical conversion, and then eventually we'll make our way to what is happening in the state of Israel today. So to begin with, who was the first convert? Uh, it's a question of who was the first Jew, actually. Ah, uh, in okay. rabbinic literature, uh, so the first convert are the students, so to speak, of Abraham and Sarah, right? The Bible describes Abraham and Sarah engaging in some sort of conversion process to bring people to monotheism. Uh, later on in the Bible, uh, the classical first convert is Ruth, uh, whose story we read on the holiday of Shavuot. Uh, Ruth, of course, makes that grand statement, uh, your nation is my nation, and uh, if we take a step back for a moment, we can understand that the, the grassroots of what Ruth does is really found at the uh, giving of the Torah, where the Jews themselves as a nation go through some form of conversion by accepting the commandments, by going through the water, if you will, by engaging in Brit Milah for the men. Uh, later on in Jewish history, still in the Bible, we have uh, in the book of Esther, uh, a biblical verse that talks about Rabbi uh, As the Jews uh, developed power in Ahasuerus' reign, the book of Esther describes how many non-Jews joined the Jewish community. And uh, along the way, in rabbinic times, of course, we have uh, ups and downs in terms of when there were people converting and when there weren't people converting. Sometimes that was read back also into the times of King Solomon. But uh, over the course of time, uh, Judaism, I think it's fair to say, had periods in its history uh, where, Ju- where conversion was encouraged, and uh, especially in the land of Israel, and times in its uh, history where conversion was discouraged. It appears that from what you're talking about, from the biblical sources, that conversion way back when was a lot easier than it is today. Meaning Ruth essentially stated, I will join myself with the fate of the Jewish people and I will accept your God. And that is considered kosher enough for her to be what, the great grandmother of King David? So in one sense, she just uh, you know makes a statement. On the other hand, she dedicates her entire life to something. And uh, I don't think that should be uh, minimize, you know, she follows her mother-in-law, uh, you know, back to the land of Israel. She was her husband. In other words, there she goes through, you know, quite a journey uh, to come to that moment, and certainly after that moment as well. Uh, that being said, 
the standards have certainly uh, changed in terms of what it's like to join the club, if you will. And uh, in that sense, uh, there's no question that we're at a time where uh, part of the contemporary debate is exactly what kind of standards we should have for accepting uh, membership into the Jewish community from the outside. When did standards begin? Was it with uh, rabbinic Judaism after the fall of the Second Temple when all of that was being codified? So the rabbinic model of conversion, which actually involves for a male four pieces, not three pieces, and for a female three, you know, it's Brit Milah is unique to male, but uh, the immersion in a mikvah and the acceptance of mitzvot, and actually one thing that we don't do anymore at all, which is the offering of a sacrifice, is something that appears in rabbinic literature and uh, is, is actually subsequently kind of uh, replayed on the on the Mount Sinai experience. In other words, they learn each of those elements from uh, the Sinaitic moment of the receiving of the Torah and the, of the Jewish people. In other words, to a certain extent, someone who joins the faith afterwards has to re-engage what our ancestors, those who were born Jewish, did at the time. So uh, really it develops in, in rabbinic times. I, I should note, just for purposes of comprehensiveness, that uh, at least one great rabbinical scholar in the medieval period, Maimonides, believes that no conversion is completely finished until the temple is rebuilt and converts have an opportunity to bring sacrifices. So if you're listening to this and you're a convert yourself, uh, we fully accept you to the Jewish people. You're fully part of our people, but know that you already owe a sheep or a cow or whatever it is uh, you know, down the road. <laughs> Amazing. Um, one of the great things about Judaism, in my mind, is that there is no Jewish pope, meaning different rabbis and different traditions can decide for themselves. But the issue of conversion is so contentious in terms of proving that you actually are a Jew after you decide to join the fate of the Jewish people. How did it become more standardized between the different uh, Jewish denominations and sects? So it's a great question. And the answer is it really didn't. There was a lot of respect until the really postmodern period, until the last 20 or 30 years, there was actually a tremendous amount of uh, respect and understanding uh, between at least certain uh, divisions in the community. Uh, of course, the onset of modernity uh, led to uh, fissures within the Jewish community. When you talk about the creation of the Reform Movement and the creation of the Orthodox Movement, uh, you know, in the in the 1810s and 1820s, conversion still wasn't a big issue in those, in those communities. If you look back at the literature, let's say when Reform began. And orthodoxy began uh, at the same time, essentially. It was that fissure. So you'll you'll understand that really conversion wasn't one of the central issues. People weren't talking about coming in from the outside. The issues of of uh, being more like the non-Jews or less like the non-Jews were really the central issues of the day. The issue of conversion really uh, takes a very prominent role on the North American scene as intermarriage and as assimilation become much, much bigger issues, in particular intermarriage. And that's when the real fissures begin the real literature begins where, again, there is definitely, um, uh, you know, dividing lines between what we would call the movements, the reform movement and the orthodox movement in particular. Uh, there are efforts, and again, moving really up to the contemporary period in the 60s, there's efforts to acknowledge the differences between the orthodoxy and conservative movements in North America, but still work together on the conversion issue. There's a couple of projects, one is known as the Denver Project, uh, projects that were done together with the flagship institution of the conservative movement, the Jewish Theological Seminary, and Rabbi Soloveitchik at Yeshiva University, the, his contemporary, I wouldn't call it contemporary necessarily, but uh, his parallel in, in at JTS was a guy, a rabbi named Boaz Cohn, and they really tried to develop uh, not just a standards committee, but a way, a methodology of converting together. 
So there were attempts all the time, but within the Orthodox community itself, there was always, always, always mutual respect until maybe the last 15 years. Uh, so yes, it's true. Judaism doesn't have a Pope and that actually played, uh, played in favor of people who converted in different communities. There was always mutual respect, the sense that even if you didn't convert in my Beit, in my rabbinical court, there's still room for you in my community. That changed in the last 20 years. And in my, uh, reading of history, it changed dramatically and for the worse. Okay, before we get to what's happening right now, in fact, one of the sticking points between the de denominations is the idea of matrilineal versus patrilineal descent, uh, meaning uh, orthodoxy, and I believe uh, the conservative movement as well only recognizes matrilineal birth, Jewish birth, whereas reform movement has traditionally, at least in the past several decades, also recognized patrilineal. When did the idea of matrilineal descent actually begin? So that's an excellent question. It's a question that's debated among scholar historians of the Second Temple period uh, when exactly it began. But uh, that has become, or that was, until the decision in the 1980s of the Reform Movement, that was kind of a universally accepted decision over the last two centuries. So even though one could argue that Abraham's children were, you know, followed him and not his wife or whatever it is that you want to argue, uh, in the end, uh, the Jewish narrative basically was a narrative of matrilineal descent beginning within rabbinic Judaism. And because of that, again, there are debates in the Talmud about it, but it ultimately that's, that, that's what won the day. So it's almost, it's not that it's irrelevant what happened, but it's more of a historical note than it is a practical note for the Jewish community because the Jewish community consensus until the 80s was that uh, Judaism went uh, matrilineally. Again, because of the reform movement's ideology, what ultimately happened is, as again, their vision of things moving along with the times, facing the realities of incredibly high intermarriage rates, which are even higher now than they were then. Uh, so they made a decision, a critical decision that uh, created, I'd like to be, not to believe a permanent fissure, but a serious fissure between the, the reform movement and the other movements to accept uh, patrilineal Jews as well. And of course, in terms of the conversion issue, that has broad implications because if once upon a time uh, you accepted the matrilineal de decision, so even in the reform community, you could uh, convert the children, at least. Nowadays, there's no need to convert the children because the children are converted, considered Jewish uh, by the denomination. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. Now, let's talk about briefly what are considered kosher motivations for conversion. Meaning, you talk about the rise of uh, intermarriage. Is marriage considered a good enough reason to convert? So that's an excellent question. And the truth is that over, you know, in the uh, ups and downs of Jewish history, that's changed. If you open up Maimonides, you'll find out that, uh, you know, it's uh, it's an illegitimate con reason to convert if you try to convert, uh, you know, just to get married. Uh, today, it is much within the consensus that 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 can that might be your primary motivation, but it can't be your exclusive motivation. But if your exclusive motivation is to get married, and I'm talking here within the Orthodox community, within the non-Orthodox community, that's considered much more uh, a given today. There's kind of like in the Orthodox community, if I'm brutally honest, that as an Orthodox rabbi and a member of the rabbi, and I'm, I'm being, I want to be honest about this, I think there's kind of like a subtle don't ask, don't tell. Meaning Orthodox rabbis know that people are converting to get married, 
but they want to explore that that's not the only motivation that, uh, and the question of how far you explore that is an important question, but it's really undergone a big sea change. And I think also in the last 20, 25 years, it's become much more accepted that people convert for purposes of marriage. Okay, now there's a popularly held belief, I don't know if it's true, that when a convert comes to a rabbi, he needs to be turned away three times. Is there any basis to this uh, perhaps urban legend? So it's not really an urban legend. The The Talmud does describe that uh, converts are not exactly the most popular of uh, of uh, communities that uh, are accepted into the into the normative Jewish community, but the Talmud has many, many passages. And I'd remind you, the 36th, Times in the Torah, it says that we have to protect the convert and understand those who were born Jewish have to protect the convert to be sensitive to the needs of the convert and the vulnerabilities of the convert. And I think it depended on the time. It really, it depended on the time. Uh, at certain times in Jewish history, it was considered objectionable to bring converts in. And I think those statements were said in those times, the discouraging statements. Today, I think it's something totally, totally different. I think, uh, I don't believe Judaism is a missionary religion. I don't believe we should be out missionizing at all. On the other hand, I do believe that those who genuinely want to be part of our faith, and more importantly, those who are already living in Israel or living in as part of Jewish communities outside of Israel, have to be treated differently. We have to be encouraging and embracing in an effort to give them all opportunities to uh, fully embrace Jewish life. So as you said, it is different in every era. And I think uh, because anti-Semitism and persecution of Jews was so so terribly high throughout history until the state of Israel, that perhaps rabbis had this belief of uh, why would anyone want to join our crazy club, right? But now that the state of Israel is founded and, and thriving, dare we say, it's, is it possible that the rabbis in Israel greet the convert with more suspicion? So certainly in Israel, and that's for a different reason than I think the one you mentioned, it's not only an issue of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, you know, you live in Israel as a Jew, you're also subject, not necessarily anti-Semitism, but you're subject to all sorts of threats. Again, this is, a, thank God, a very safe country, but it's also a country where there's imminent threats all the time, and uh, people have to be made aware of that. I think the issue is different. I think the, the, uh, the subtle, non-pure motivation, especially from people coming from without, from without Israel, it's people who come from any place and want to uh, become Jewish, is that in Israel today, in modern state of Israel, there's a direct connection because of the law between conversion and the capacity to get citizenship. In other words, no other country in the world has such a such a law like this, and it's got a, it's it's a double-edged sword, right? You can't imagine if you were living in Canada. Right. If you did, if you engage in a religious act, that would automatically grant you citizenship. But in this country, it does. So that is a remarkable thing because it enables people to have all sorts of financial rights and the capacity to vote and become a citizen of a country, which, of course, in today's world is a is a positive value. And in that sense, uh, I, I, I do believe that some there is a suspicion uh, that particularly manifests itself in Israel, not in the area that I work in so much, but the area of trying to convert um What's generally known, I don't like the term so much, of foreign workers. Israel has some 150,000 people who are working here uh, from Thailand and Vietnam and China and uh, Ukraine and all sorts of places that aren't Jewish at all, but they come here to provide, uh, they're given work visas uh, to be here. And then there's another group of 20 or 30 or 40,000 that walked across the border when there was no wall from primarily Africa, Sudan, and uh, there are foreign places like that. And, and a lot of them want to convert. Some of them are genuine. I've met some of them, and they're incredible. And they're uh, they they they're observant. They they so want to be part of the Jewish people. 
But there's always a suspicion that some of them want to do it just so they can get citizenship here, so they don't have to go back to where they came from, even though they came here illegally. And that is something that the government, with without a concrete uh, immigration policy, doesn't know what to do with so well. Okay, fascinating. But it seems that in the modern state of Israel, the biggest uh, challenge, perhaps, in the face of conversion is the wave of Russian immigration. Tell me a little bit about what happened when some one million former Soviet Union citizens came to Israel. All right. So the great narrative, the incredible, the amazing narrative of uh, what I call as an Orthodox rabbi, the ingathering of the exiles, but essentially the, 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 re- the living of the Zionist dream, where uh, the doors of Israel were open to all Jews who had Jewish grandparent, uh, that turns out has some challenges associated with it. So I grew up, you know, in the Soviet Jewry movement in America, you know, screaming, one, two, three, four, open up the iron door, five, six, seven, eight, let my people immigrate. And uh, the truth is that there was kind of a universal sense of uh, passion and commitment towards uh, breaking down the Iron Curtain and enabling Jews and people of Jewish descent to come on Aliyah. Uh, that all happened, right? It happened in our days. And, you know, in 1989, the Berlin Wall came down and people and immigration was open between 1988 or 89 and, and 2004, a million one hundred thousand. Uh, Israel saw the, you know, opened its gates to a million one hundred thousand emigrants from the former Soviet Union. But it turns out that over the 70 years of communism and the, uh, the Iron Curtain, it turns out that many of them were children of intermarriages. And in many cases, probably about 30%, uh, the moms weren't Jewish. That didn't mean they weren't eligible to make Aliyah. They were eligible to make Aliyah and become full citizens in Israel. So they actually had the rights of citizenship in Israel already. They were already citizens. But when it came to their Jewish status, they didn't fit into the Jewish status, the classical Jewish status that we talked about a few minutes ago about the maternal line. And uh, that has created an enormous challenge for the state of Israel. Today, we're talking about something like 5 to 6% of the Israeli Jewish community who made Aliyah as Jews, who emigrated to Israel as Jews, uh, are not halachically Jewish. These are not people who claim to be Jewish, but can't prove it. That's a different area. These are people who, they don't they have no claim to being Jewish, except their dads are Jewish or their grandparents are Jewish on their paternal line. Again, for the reform movement in the States, this would be less of an issue, but the reform movement in Israel actually adopted the maternal line definition as well. It's kind of an internal contradiction between the reform movement for all sorts of reasons, not worth going into right now. So all the movements feel like we need to come up with a way to embrace these people. What's remarkable about it, Amanda, is that is that Israel went to the former Soviet Union. We encouraged these people to come. We promised them all sorts of benefits. We told them, come here and take responsibility, serve in the army, pay taxes, you're full citizens. But at a certain point, that stops. And particularly where it stops is in the uh, jurisdictional plane of the of the rabbinate. The Israeli rabbinate in Israel has jurisdiction over marriage and divorce. And none of these people, 0% of them, because they're you know, part of Jewish community, if they want to marry Jews, they can't get married in Israel. If both of you, if both members of the couple are non-Jewish, then they can apply for a, a special dispensation to be married outside of uh, outside of the rabbinate and in the courts. But otherwise, there is no civil marriage in Israel. You can only get married in your religious denomination. So because of that, these people have no, oppor- no option of getting married in Israel. They have to go overseas to get married. And that's something very objectionable. But it's not just objectionable on the technical front of uh, people the, people's inability to get married. It's on the substantive front. If people are going to take on responsibilities, they have rights. And it's really on the perspective of the of the, narr- the Jewish narrative, the grand Jewish narrative. The grand Jewish narrative has this moment where Jews are returning to the land of Israel. That's the living, that's the, it's the realization of the, it's the embodiment of the Zionist dream. And in that sense, uh, it's a great responsibility for the state of Israel, and particularly, in my opinion, the halachic authorities, the people who are in charge of 
the part of at least part of the Jewish culture of Israel to come up with a, a, a normative halachic response that will enable people to convert in this country, those who want to at least. Obviously, people can apply to convert, but it's somewhat an arduous process, to say the least, here in Israel. Meaning, the person who serves in the army, the person who is, uh, you know, put his life on the line, may not want to adopt all the mitzvot, but he may want to be considered and numbered among his Jewish brethren. So, what is the process today as it stands? So, there's actually uh, three tracks, or four tracks, I should say, in this in this country to convert. Uh, one track is through the army. The army has a uh, 14-week seminar and then a two-month course afterwards that you can do as part of your service. But uh, the the bottom line is after you go through the entire process, if you're not 100% observant according to the way that the rabbis in the army or who serve in that court uh, want you to be Jewish, then you simply can't convert. Uh, there's a similar process in the civil authority, uh, but again, it's the same uh, process, the same standards, which again, reflect one line. I don't want to say they're bad or good. I just want to say they reflect one line within the Orthodox community, a line which, if you ask me to be brutally honest, I would say doesn't fully take into account the grand narrative that I talked about before, the needs of the hour. Uh, on the other side, there's uh, the Reform and Conservative movements have options to convert in this country that require community involvement, but require less, much less, significantly less observance than the rabbinate uh, requires. And then there's a fourth track, which is kind of the newest track, the one that I'm most involved in as an Orthodox rabbi, which is kind of the private Orthodox track, which takes into account, uh, it very much sees the responsibility of the rabbinical courts to uh, come up with creative ways, given the realities on the ground, to enable people to be fully part of the Jewish community and uh, the halachic community as well. Hi, this is Raoul Wycliffe, the producer of the Times of Israel Daily Briefing, your 15-minute daily update on what's important in Israel, the Middle East, and the Jewish world. Listen to us Sunday through Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts, or on the mothership, thetimesofisrael.com. Okay, let's drill down on the private track right now. Uh, this hasn't been fully recognized uh, throughout its whole existence, correct? What is the actual uh, legal standing of this private track today? So starting in the about eight or nine years ago, I began conceiving of a, a private Beit Din, a private rabbinical court that would be orthodox in character, and to a certain extent, or even to a large extent, would compete with the rabbinate. My goal is not to compete with the rabbinate, as they say, lishma, for, you know, just for the sake of competing with the rabbinate. My goal is to basically show there's a different way to do this, a way that's within the consensus of uh, the Israeli Jewish population, uh, which means, to a large extent today, orthodox, but not the way that the rabbinate is. And I believe the rabbinate has moved uh, to radical, to adopting radical positions. They don't reflect the Zionist reality and the diversity of the Jewish community. Uh, we began... Uh, with six rabbis kind of just doing a private conversion. And uh, our main focus is children. We work on, you know, with families, intermarried families, primarily from the former Soviet Union, whose children are not halakhically Jewish, but they are concerned uh, for the future of their children. I would say that there's three areas. When you talk about the recognition, there's three areas of consent of uh, recognition. The widest area of recognition is the consensus within the Israeli Jewish community. Today, the rabbinate is within the consensus. 
And one of our biggest challenges was to say, what can we do if we're going to compete with the rabbinate to get in the consensus? We began, as I said, with six rabbis. Today, we're 70 rabbis for the religious Zionist community. And uh, those 70 rabbis have a very, very wide reach across religious, secular boundaries. And because of that, I think it's fair to say today we're very much in the consensus, which means when we convert the children, especially, they can have bar mitzvahs in just about any shul in this country. And the schools treat them as Jews in every sense. You know, we've had cases before where kids wanted to have like a bar mitzvah party, but the other kids in the school, a secular school, would say, hey, you're not Jewish. But once they go through our process, then they are Jewish enough for the consensus. There's a second circle of consensus, which are recognition, excuse me, which is not the public consensus, but the legal consensus when it comes to uh, the population registry. As I mentioned before, 450,000 people uh, made Aliyah, they immigrated to Israel as Jews, but then the population registry, because their moms aren't Jewish, they're listed as what's called in Hebrew, chasrei dat, or lacking religion or no religion. We set out in the courts in this country to change that. We argued in the absence of any law in this country that, ma- that, uh, that limbs what conversion is, there's no real difference from a civil perspective from what the rabbin is doing to what we're doing. And that's a case that we fought in the court for two years and we won. So today, I say this with a sense of humility and to a certain extent with a sense of cynicism. Um, if someone converts in the Gyor Kalacha network, which is the network that I'm in charge of, then basically I can determine that they are a Jew for the state of Israel. Like I'm, I'm one of the handful of people in the world who can determine who is a Jew in the state of Israel. And I agree, it's a little absurd, but it's just a reality today. In other words, we won a case in court, and today, in the past year, we've taken 150 people and changed their status from no religion to Jewish in the civil authorities in Israel. That's called the population registry. It's a technical thing, but it does give a certain state recognition to the processes we're doing. The third uh, circle of recognition is the capacity to be married and divorced in this country. That's, as I mentioned before, the jurisdiction of the rabbinate. And we are in a, uh, one might argue a tango, and one might argue a duel with the rabbinate about exactly how the rabbinate is going to recognize our conversions. It's important for me to emphasize, Amanda, that, and for the listeners especially, that the people who are affecting our conversions, the rabbis, are members of the rabbinate. They're licensed members of the rabbinate. Some of them even convert for the rabbinate. So it's very hard for the rabbinate on a substantive level to say, well, Rabbi X, if you convert on Tuesday, if you perform conversions on Tuesday, then we'll sign off on it. But if you perform conversions on Wednesday, we won't because you're doing it for Giyor Kalacha. It's absurd. It's just a political discussion right now. And we've eliminated the, the legal obstacles to having our conversions recognized. So to a, a certain extent, uh, this is a political discussion. And it's going to depend on the politics and the timing, etc. In the meantime, we're creating facts on the ground. We began, as I said, with six rabbis in a room doing three conversions. Today, we're doing 22% of all the conversions in the country. So over five years, we've taken a big chunk out of the, uh, you know, the market and we're hoping to grow. Uh, in this country, unfortunately, one of the ways to get things done is just to create facts on the ground. So that's what we're doing right now. And we have 1,400 people we've already converted and, uh, approximately, and we're, you know, we're continuing just about every week. We have a, you know, a court that sits and performs conversions. Again, our main focus is the children of immigrants who aren't Jewish, but, uh, thank God we're, we're very, very successful in what we're doing. And we're, we're, the people who go through our process are very, very positive about what they've had to go through. Okay. Have any of the 1400 come to the Rabbanut to get married yet? So, we discourage them from doing so because we don't want to put the rabbit in that place until we're ready to do it. But it does happen every once in a while. And then each time we have to try to figure out some solution for them uh, in one way or another. But uh, since we're mainly focused on kids, that that kind of puts the issue 
a little farther away. But like I said, uh, some 20 to 30% of our conversions are adults. Sometimes I have these beautiful stories of a, uh, a family, a, a Russian family, you know, in this case, the, uh, he's is native Israeli. She's from the former Soviet Union. She tried to give her in the army, wasn't able to. She, she found the, the process too uh, arduous for her. But she did all the studying and she was very committed and they live a very Jewish life, even though she's not halakhically Jewish. They like candles, they make Kiddush, they have Shabbat meals, they celebrate all the holidays. Now they have three kids and they come to Gyur Ka'alacha and we explain to them what the process is and how to, what they have to do. And they're very much in the, you know, in the loop and they get to the rabbinical court and the rabbinical court is very, very impressed with her. And at a certain point they hear her story and how she tried in the army and how she still, you know, has, is still studying, etc. but she's not going to go back to the rabbinate. And at a certain point, the, the rabbinical, our rabbinical court, the private rabbinical court looks at her and says, well, why don't you convert as well? And she says, but they told me I can't. And our rabbis say, but you can, because you're ready. You know, and we convert the kids that day. And then a few days, you know, a couple of weeks later, a couple months later, I don't remember exactly the timing. You know, she comes back with a letter from her rabbi, etc., And she converts as well. So those are, and then she has a chuppah for the first time, you know, and her kids are at our chuppah. And it wasn't supposed to be like this. It, it should have been that she converted in the army. It should have been that she, you know, this was behind her and her kids were born Jewish, etc. But it didn't happen. We can fix that. In other words, some people like to call that the, the rebounds, but we're not, we don't want to be just the, you know, the rejecter, you know, the people who were rejected. We have something that we believe is part of the grand narrative of uh, the Zionist enterprise. And we believe we're, we're pushing that forward. And uh, we don't believe the rabbit should just go away and close down. They should continue what they're doing. But for people who can't make it there, we have an orthodox alternative that's real, that's substantive, that's meaningful, that's halachic, and ultimately will be fully accepted by uh, by the state of Israel. So that's what we're hoping So moving, for. I'm about to cry, don't talk anymore, but I wouldn't <laughs> call that the rebound, I would call that the repair, actually, the tikkun, tikkun yes. olam. Certainly, we're, we feel that we're engaged in that. Definitely. And I meet these people all the time. I really, in other words, on, on a daily basis, it's not that I'm inured to it, because thank God we have a staff of you know, a group of young people who are just very passionate about this. Some of them themselves went through conversion, but but it's it's very powerful to walk into our office at Etim and see people meeting every day and bringing these young kids into our office who, you know, come in, you know, full of life and full of Hebrew and Jewish culture and they're part of it. And we have to fix this halachic issue. We just have to fix it. We have no, we have no, the alternative is much worse. Fix the halachic issue and also to be accepted by your own peers, your own society. It's extremely important, obviously, for any child and any person uh, growing up. Now, there are many, many ugly stories that we hear uh, in headlines in the news as well, in which a conversion is retroactively annulled. How is that at all possible? <sighs> you ask a good question. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly how it's possible. I'll tell you the story of Maxim and Alina Sardikov. Uh, they were a couple that turned to us in the, you know, in the, you know, seven, eight years ago. They, they were the living dream of the, you know, of this, of someone like me who grew up fighting for the Soviet jury, you know, the Soviet jury to get out. In 1993, they met Aliyah in second grade. They went to, you know, public school number two in Ashkelon. They grew up together by the time they were 16. They were a couple. They joined the IDF together and they knew at that point that Maxim's father, uh, mother was Jewish and Alina's father was Jewish. And, uh, she went through the army conversion program. And adopted a traditional lifestyle, and uh, I love to tell the story at their wedding, Channel Two in Israel. Then now Channel Ten or Eleven, I don't know which one it is anymore. But they they came to film Maxime's wedding, and uh, you know I I said on the on, on the camera I said I'll perform their wedding. I'm so convinced that Alina is Jewish. I'll perform their wedding even if it means my losing my license. But Maxime was much more powerful when he said 
because right, I have a license by the rabbinate to perform weddings in this country. Maxim said something much more powerful. He said, you know, in the middle of the Lebanon War, when they dropped me on the other side of the Litani River, then my girlfriend's conversion was fine. But, but when we walked into the rabbinate in Ashkelon, then they said, oh, the army conversions, we're not so sure about those. And it wasn't even like a, a, a formal annulment. It was just like, we don't accept that which is totally antithetical to Jewish tradition. And again, uh, in the end, when we went to court, Itim in the end sued the rabbinate of Ashkelon and a number of other rabbinates as well, when the number of soldiers who had converted had gone up to 40, and the rabbinate just kept on saying, oh, we'll find the solution for this one, we'll find the solution for that one, etc. We went to, we sued in the Supreme Court, we sued the Ashkelon rabbinate to recognize conversions of the rabbinate that they work for, in other words, for the, of the chief rabbinate. Right? Alina holds a conversion certificate from the chief rabbinate. Well, ultimately, we won. And ultimately, even though I lost my license for a little bit, I got my license back. But the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the issue of how can you do that is because, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different traditions floating around. And unfortunately, no one is, even when the rabbinate says we do it, we, we have a conversion that we accept. Not everybody has to accept it. And there, because it's political, not everybody's willing to kind of go to bat for the converts. I think that's a basic Jewish value, right? Every, I, I pray three times a day in our prayers. In the 16th or 15th blessing in the, in the Amidah, we pray for Geirei HaTzedek, for the people who converted. It's part of my prayers every day. So I feel like there's not enough being done to, to, to let this happen. There are isolated cases. Uh, it's not hundreds, for sure. But there have been tens of cases where uh, rabbinical courts have tried to annul or not certify other Orthodox conversions. That's something we fight at Itim very hard against. Uh, and, you know, we're successful in some cases. In the case of the conversions in the army, we were successful on a systemic level, meaning uh, by the end, it was we were talking about, there's been about 12,000 conversions in the army, another 35,000 or so in the civil authority, and we were able to get those all guaranteed. And one of the great things I'm proud of is today the rabbinate stands behind them and all the Haredi members of this, they all stand behind the rabbinate conversions, which to a certain extent, Gyur Kalachah has become the enemy, and the army conversions are now all sacrosanct, and you know, no one's going to touch them anymore. But uh, it's a problem. I agree. The fact that, uh, in other words, I wish I could do more about it. I wish these rabbis who work in the system, I wish they weren't political appointees that feel like their, their main goal in life is to, is to be rejecting instead of embracing. Okay, just to finish up, you spoke earlier about a fissure between the diaspora, uh, also between different de- denominations in the diaspora and Israel. How do you see this being healed in terms of conversion? Um, I think that over the course of time, we have to learn to work together. We have to, as I mentioned before, there were efforts in the 60s by some of the most prominent Orthodox authorities to cross lines uh, and say that denominations, uh, last, last I checked in the Torah and in the Talmud, there is the mention of Orthodox, Reform, and Conservative don't appear. And I think traditional Judaism understood what schism was. And it could be we've, we're, at, we're at a point of no return, but I'd like to believe we're not. And I'd like to believe that uh, the more people understand the price we're paying for promoting schism, the less they'll want to do that. I think today the rabbinate is beginning, and I, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic looking forward, they're beginning to understand that there's a bigger story here. We can't afford, as a Jewish community, to write off millions of people who identify as Jewish and, and are Jewish, or Jewish halachically even, and if they're not, they're married to Jews who are halachic Jews, and they, they're bringing up Jewish families. So what can be done to repair? I think we need to have a lot more education, but I think we have to have uh, people with broad shoulders, people who are willing to be bold, people who are willing, rabbis in particular, but not only rabbis, people who are willing to move things forward and say, 
hey, we need to reach across, you know, across the across lines and talk about how we can come up with solutions. Uh, I believe, honestly, if you want a more practical solution, not me just talking, you know, in the air, I would say that the notion of converting minors, children, which from a halachic perspective does not demand, at least in 21st century, does not demand, according to most halachic authorities, the observance of commandments as defined by the ultra-Orthodox. It doesn't require that, and that's not just a liberal Orthodox opinion. That's kind of a general Orthodox opinion. When you convert kids under bar bat mitzvah, you don't need the acceptance of commandments. It's significant, it's significant enough just to have the tefillah or the, you know, the immersion in the mikvah or uh, the brit milah for a boy. I think that could be a potential solution. That could bind us all together. How exactly a, such a rabbinical court would work, I have big plans, but not for today, for another time. But uh, in the meantime, I know there are discussions going on and there are opportunities that are available. But it needs bo- people with not just bold ideas, but, uh, you know, willingness to move forward. Willingness not to just accept the status quo as it is, but to change it for a better Jewish future. I think this is part of the, like I said before, the Zionist enterprise. And I think it's actually part of this new era in Jewish history. So we have a great opportunity, great challenge in front of us. When we think about Ruth and we think about uh, the the challenge she took upon herself and the uh, commitment she took upon herself as an individual today and the implications that had for the Jewish people, today we have uh, a national challenge or an international challenge and we have a great opportunity to move forward with it. Seth, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 